0: You're listening to Campus Review Radio.
1: This is Carl Treacher and I'm joined by Martin Betts. We're the founders of Headex, and our podcast explores the changing landscape of the higher education sector in association with Campus Review. Welcome to the Higher Education Experience. <music> Welcome to another episode of
0: HeadX. Welcome, Martin. Hi there, Carl. It's great to, to be back up in the period after Easter with another really exciting guest on the, sh- on the episode today.
1: You know, I get a feeling being post-Easter, I don't know what it is, but certainly some of my conversations and views across uh, industry, the tide's changed a little bit. I don't know whether it's the traction that the vaccine is having as it rolls out or just general confidence or a lot of media hype, but I'm seeing a lot more confidence generally across uh, all sectors, and reports that business and the economy are likely
0: to boom well i mean we can see that in some of the economic data can't we but i i I know what you mean it's like that we've come through a bit of a milestone in the watershed i i think a watershed on the east coast of australia of a certain sort that's for sure but i I think the mood and some of the commentary in the sector is also suggesting that we're at different times in this period now um, looking ahead to the the period beyond 2021 and the opportunities to, m- to move beyond survival into a different way of thinking.
1: And this week, you've got a very special guest for us.
0: Well, we, we've got a fabulous guest this week, Carl. I mean, Bridget Haywood's been Vice-Chancellor and CEO, um, is the dual title she has there at the University of New England, for coming up to two years now. But University of New England is a really interesting place. It's, it's not only is it Australia's oldest regional university, and we've been saying a lot about regional universities on headaches for some little while of... How, how the rise in regions and an increased focus on external engagement in communities that are that are booming in our regions are giving new opportunities. It's an old regional university, but it's also been more innovative, I think, than many in the sector in the period coming into COVID during it and beyond in terms of building on its experience of, of distance education and being really innovative in the personalised learner journey space and micro-credential space. So, yeah, I'm really looking forward to our conversation with Bridget.
1: Mm. And coming from a very naive perspective, just in terms of brand analytics and be- being aware of who's doing what in the market in terms of brand communication, UNE has been relatively successful in getting into my um, inner circle of, of awareness. You know, I'm, I know very little about UNE, but I've certainly seen their advertising and their communication now for several years. I personally quite like their visual identity. I think it speaks to a more progressive organisation. So I'm fascinated to hear um, what Bridget's got to say.
0: Well, she's a very interesting character, and that will come across in the interview. But um, I think at a time when things are changing, one of the things that you and I have reflected upon as we came into the Easter break, and I'm sure we'll build upon it in this period after it, is that... The issues of, of leadership and leadership style and culture in organizations are really becoming to the fore. I think we've moved beyond the sort of cookie-cutter approach and cookie-cutter needs for university leadership and university culture as 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 they increasingly look to differentiate and they and they have even more and stronger responses to their organizational and institutional setting the importance of individual approaches to leadership and and particular ac- approaches to culture development and shaping are becoming really to the fore. Mm.
1: And I'm seeing correlation here across some of the more um, progressive emerging leaders. And we've got Matthew Cooperholtz coming up in one of our podcasts. He's the Chief Data Scientist at PwC. And some of the things that he has to um, offer and his perspective around the sector, of what needs to happen from both talent and also just generally um, engagement with the industry Uh, There's some real common themes popping out through that. So based on what you said there, I imagine there's some real correlation between what Bridget's doing and what um, industry or or commercial needs uh, are suggesting at the moment.
0: Well, that's very much what I took from my conversation with her. And maybe we should stop teasing ourselves and all of our um, audience any further and get into hearing Bridget's story. It starts at a very interesting place in the Pacific Ocean. Wow. Okay. great. Our guest today on HeadX is Professor Bridget Haywards, the Vice Chancellor and Chief Executive Officer at the University of New New England. Bridget, welcome to HeadX.
2: Uh, good afternoon, Martin. I think it's afternoon now, not morning, and um, great to be
0: here. Well, that's good, and it's really nice to have have you on this podcast series. And and you're joining us today, Bridget. Nearly two years into being in the role of Vice Chancellor at University of New England, you've you've had spells between or before that, in the chancelleries at Massey University in New Zealand and the University of Tasmania. But tell us how you came to be appointed at the University of New England and what that represented <laughs> as a step in your career.
2: Uh, oh, uh, I'm sure there are lots of versions of that story, but <laughs> I'll, I'll share the one I'll share the one that I lived as opposed to the one that should be told. Um, so as you've just commented, uh, I was deputy vice chancellor for research at UTAS. Um, And I came to one of those big life course moments that we all have where I was approaching my 60th birthday and I was also recognising 40 years in education and research. So I think I had a a kind of midlife crisis with the the number 100 sitting there in the middle of my thinking. And... Came to a realization that I was ready for a change, that I'd done the big pieces of work that I was I was recruited into Tasmania to do. Um, that I just needed a break. I just in, in, intuitively, emotionally, psychologically, socially, I was ready for a break. And I took the opportunity to say, I'm going to actually retire. And I genuinely planned a retirement. And I'd always wanted on my bucket list to do Rapa Nui, Easter Island. So um, I trained up to go to Patagonia and go and walk Rapa Nui and look at the the statues and study the island. And I set off on my own to go to Patagonia. So I did Patagonia in Chile and then I went to Easter Island. And when I was on Easter Island in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, um, I got asked, would I consider applying to be the vice chancellor of UNE? And the people that asked me had done their homework and worked out that my background was in distance education, regional economic development, the social purpose um, of the University of New England and my own interests aligned really well and someone worked that out for me. And and we started the conversation when I was in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, looking at uh, at the artifacts of another culture from another completely different point in the planet's life. So um, a really good moment just to reconnect with what was important to me, Um, to recognize that I had over 40 years, had the opportunity to gather a range of different experiences and that someone was giving me the opportunity that I hadn't really thought about beforehand. And then I got offered this opportunity for the oldest regional university in Australia, Um, all about distance education. 70% of our students are women, something I'm deeply passionate about, which is the opportunity of education to address need and to give people opportunities in life. And so all of a sudden, I've been given this kind of new lease of life. Um, I would like to say that I'm less grey than I was two years ago, but that wouldn't be true. Um, I've experienced drought, bushfires, pestilence and plague here in New England. Um, But I've also met, I've I've just become yet again the opportunity to be part of an amazing institution and to be able to fulfill a particular role um, and in the doing so to have new challenges for myself and that I discovered deeply was important to me that I'm a person that needs to be inspired and feel that I'm developing as a result of the challenges that I'm asked to address or contribute to the resolution of so um, who would have thought that I'd be sitting on Easter Island doing my bucket list holiday and I would commit to going back to full-time employment instead of just sitting in the sun with a martini.
0: What a wonderful story, Bridget, and um, a, a, a great transition into the role at UNE. And then, for goodness' sake, you you outlined some of the various things that you've been exposed to in your time there. What a what a what an amazing two years that you've been in the role. And the world would have seemed such a different place when you started in July, twenty nineteen and i just wonder if you can share with us what it felt like to be a new new vc at a new place as events unfolded through 2019 when when might one might say that they've never been times have never seemed so good through 2020 when one would probably argue that they've never seemed so uncertain to now in 2021 when when it could be argued that they've never it's never been a tougher time to lead a university what's that transition through those parts of three years felt like to you, given the way that you came into the role?
2: Well, I I think the word we're all using at the moment is is a little bit of survival, sort of survivor guilt, as well as, as the excitement of having survived and seeing my institution through the worst of it, hopefully. So a large part of the first year of this job was actually about reminding the university um, to exercise the muscles which are about emotional, psychological, and physical support to communities under challenge, and to be able to stand tall and firm and be clear about what support we could offer, how we were going to manage that, and how we were going to be part of a community that was severely challenged at each of those um, uh, in each of those situations. And probably like many other universities we had a large number of international students who could not go home who lost their casual employment um, and were essentially rendered financially you know bereft and homeless and we accommodated those we've had food parcels we've had respite care for the international students and their families that were here in our community so difficult time but but one that we worked on together it wasn't it wasn't me on my own being a hero It was me being a leading part of a team that worked collaboratively to continue to offer education. Uh, We were already largely distanced, but we moved completely online for everybody in the space of about two weeks, both our domestic and our international students. We sent all our staff home like everybody else did, but geared up to be able to support those staff whilst working at home from a very small core team that remained here on the Armadale campus. And I guess the worst, if I had to say which bit I disliked the most or I found most challenging, is I spent nearly seven months sitting on my own, in my own office, looking at Zoom 12 hours a day. Mm. Um, And I probably did that for about six months. And then I hit the the infamous Zoom brick wall. Mm. I was fed up of looking at myself and I was fed up of looking at other people. Um, And I literally just had to go, you know, Zoom bereft for about a week. I had to separate from Zoom and just reassert my physical identity um, for a short period of time. So I'm like everybody else. I did all the things that everybody else experienced. And you got on with it because that's what you're expected to do and it's the right thing to do. Um, I think we've all learned to make sure that we, we take care of our emotional souls and and that we look out for our own mental health and well-being using a slightly different set of guidelines than perhaps we would have used in our quasi-normal pre-COVID environment.
0: Well one of the things that I I really enjoyed reading in your strategy was the concept of personalized learning journeys if I can just take yep. that in specific as a specific within your strategy you, you, you describe a, 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 the the commitment to personalised learning journeys for your students as being one of the one of the keys and the cause of the strategy can you tell us what you mean by that and and help us understand how easy or, or perhaps taking it the other way again how difficult to replicate that would be as a strategic goal for other competitors to une and therefore how much you think the student experience is rising as something at the heart of strategic thinking for universities generally and for your university in particular?
2: Thank you, that's a great question Martin. I'm aware I'm nodding at you furiously and then I just remember that we're on a podcast so for those listening to the podcast as Martin was asking the question I was smiling and nodding and going oh thank you for asking that question. Um, so I guess for those of us who've lived in in the sphere of education, we've talked about this concept of personalized learning for for a long time now. So the question is, what does it mean for UNE in the context of FutureFit, our new strategic plan? And to to place it in context, first of all, the majority of our students are over the age of 30. So we we, we currently support about 24 and a half, 25,000 students. Two thirds of those will pursue their studies as part-time distance external students in the parlance of Australia um, and they'll be over the age of 30 so many of them will already have gotten an initial qualification or have been you know 10-15 years in the world of work and what they're now looking to do is formalize their their experiences and gain qualifications that will see them progressing to a new career or see them go forward within the career track that they're already placed within. And so a lot of our students, what they don't want to do is come in and be required to study a formalised degree programme that says, you've got to do maths 101, you've got to do finance 101, and you've got to do English language 101, because those are prerequisites so that we know that you're capable of independent learning or whatever. Um, They might already be doing uh, um, numeracy, literacy, communication, they may already working with competencies that have seen them successfully employed. And, and so the, the idea of personalized learning is that we engage in a conversation with our students about what is the learning that you need to participate in, in order that you can secure the qualification that's important for your life course plan. and we have the we have actually this thing the australian qualifications framework which many of us have given up parts of our lives to develop which sets out a series of learning outcomes and it says at this level aqf5 or aqf6 or aqf9 these are the learning outcomes that you have to demonstrate that you've achieved and our current modality is that we put people through a series of lectures tutorials workshops practicums etc and then we examine them to determine that by virtue of that examination they've met those graduate outcomes those learning outcomes our model is that there are different ways of assessing students as to whether they can demonstrate they've achieved those learning outcomes and then the only model of of engagement does not have to be through the process of formal lectures with prerequisites etc we can set it we can set it Structures that allow students to explore and to demonstrate that they've met the learning outcomes by different processes of, of self-directed learning, by experiential learning, and by the acquisition in, in the parlance of today of micro credentials, etc. Which, when bundled together, say, well, actually, you've met you've met the graduate outcomes of AQF five through six. So what we can now do is work with you to develop a programme of learning that will take you all the way out to your graduate qualifications. So that's that's the thesis behind it. it we're particularly gearing it because we have the majority of mature students. Um, many of the majority of them studying part-time and we trialed a version of this through a programme called the Bespoke Degree Programme so that you could come in, you have a conversation with us and we work with you to work out what subjects you'd like to study that would cohere into um, a, a degree level program or a diploma or a certificate, depending on how far you want to go at any one point in time. And so FutureFit argues that personalized learning is both that model, but also that as we develop that, that approach to curriculum content and the design of the learning experience, that we will do that in partnership with our students. And that's one of the strongest things that came from the student engagement in the creation of our new strategy, that they are demanding of a stronger voice in the way that learning and the opportunity to be part of a learning environment and the requirement for it to be self-directed by the time you get to second and third year of your undergraduate program, you need to be a self-directed learner, particularly if you're going to go on to masters or higher level qualifications, How do we absolutely engage to transition our students to be self-directed learners? Our model is to do that through a co-created, co-curated model. So co-creation and co-curation of that approach. And we can use technology, we can use things like e-portfolios, we can use our new learning management platform that we're investing, I think we're going to invest about 20 million in it this year. To develop the, the use of technology as an enabler of that approach to personalize learning, your journey, but benchmarked against a standard framework, which is what the AQF has provided us with, and, and it gives us a structure to be able to take that approach. So for those of us that are very, very old, it's kind of, you know, it's 3.0 of a, a, you know, accreditation of prior learning and that sort of modality.
0: So are you trying to um, differentiate UNE in a competitive marketplace through um, pursuing that part of your strategy then, Bridget? uh, Would we go as far as saying that this is a play by UNE to approach the issue of of learning journeys in a different way from other universities through which you might gain some strategic advantage? Is that what you're aiming to do? To
2: some extent, yes, It's, it's about differentiation. I would also argue that UNE has probably been doing this a lot over the course of its 60 odd years and that we're more formally now using technology to enable it to be scaled up. So it's a scaling equation for me now that we've got technologies and learning management platforms that allow you to build um, digital portfolios that can be readily exposed, curated and warehoused so that individuals are building a repository of evidence of their their ability to meet particular learning outcomes rather than we are the only architects of that formal journey we're allowing we're allowing individuality to be part of that journey in in a more formal way i think we've done that a lot but i think we're formalizing it and yes i think it is something different from the route that other institutions are taking but we're also focusing on work integrated learning So we've got what we call the UNE Tamworth model. And and in Tamworth, we've been given support by New South Wales government to build a new campus in Tamworth. But we've also set up classrooms and, and teaching facilities in each of the industry precincts of Tamworth. So Tamworth is built on a quadrant model. Each quadrant is a different industry sector. They've invested massively in developing those industry sectors. And we now have classrooms sitting in the middle of those industry conclaves, so that all of our students are having a work-integrated experience whilst they're in the university classroom. And we now have industry um, colleagues who are participating in being inducted. They're getting a micro-certificate in being industry tutors to our students. So we're actually formally knitting the classroom experience into industry practice. We're bringing industry into the classroom as opposed to sitting, looking at it from the outside. And that will drive the innovation ecosystem that's necessary to to add value into the primary production industries of Australia. So in practice, it's a virtuous circle. We just have to engineer it to operate at, at the right speed, I guess.
0: How are you going to measure whether it's succeeding? I, it sounds Future Fit sounds fascinating. Personalized learning journeys and industry precincts and tutors from industry. You're not going to measure the success of this by rankings in research-based university rank, ranking exercises, I presume. How, how will you measure? How will you and your stakeholders and your council and, and all of the rest of us measure what success for Future Fit at UNE looks like?
2: Uh, good question. So, so some, of it, some of it, Martin, will be, you know, we're we're, we're competitive at era, rate, you know, four or five ratings in era in a number of our um, science-based disciplines, um, education, um, archaeology, paleo. So we have a broad range of research platforms that are rated in the conventional sense at three, four and five, world class and above. And those are deeply important to us. Our university status is deeply important to us. Um, So, at the same time as as, um, developing these new concepts of education, and with them comes new concepts of knowledge sharing and knowledge creation, it's a partnership-based model of a different kind, we will continue to address TEXA requirements so that we are secure in our registration, we will continue to participate where appropriate in era, so excellence in Research Australia, typologies of measuring excellence, But we're also working with a small global group now where we've set up a little global consortium to look at defining the success of regional universities in a slightly different way we are a different beast to a large metro based um, um, university institution, we have a different role to play. And so not all of the measures that we treat as being conventional indicators of university performance are going to suit this model that we're developing. So we've set up this little working group who are going to look at different indicators of performance um, outcomes and success for a leading regional university. So, We put our first footprint in with the only university that's got, um, I think we're the only university in Australia that has a a, a smart regions incubator in three different locations in the state. So we we put that instrument, the SRI, the smart regions incubator, we put that into a benchmarking exercise of global regional incubators. So we put ourselves into the world stage from New England, Armadale, New South Wales. We said... Let's benchmark ourselves against the best region regions based incubators in the planet, and we've been ranked in the top ten to sixteen globally. Great. Um, we've only been we've only been running this incubator now for two three years. It started with the fantastic support of the New South Wales government, but it's now self funding from the university and from support. Um, and in terms of new businesses started. Uh, Um, new IP being spun out to give economic value and new jobs being created, then we're ranked 16th globally. Um, And we think we can develop that model around the capacity of the whole university as a leading regional university, an exemplar thereof for Australia.
0: You're you're, you're making a good case for why the measures of success would be different for a strategy that's trying to differentiate. I I, I assume that leadership... For such a strategy and the culture of academic and professionals working together would also be different in their optimal form for a university of that type pursuing a strategy of that nature than they would for someone leading a university in quite a different setting and setting off on quite a different path are, are you a very different leader from Australia's other university vice chancellors and are you trying to build on and further build a very different culture at UNE
2: Am I a different kind of leader? Um, I think I'm trying to be. So I, I'm I'm very aware that I'm a product of the global higher education system. I've I've had the great fortune to be part of leading universities in the United Kingdom, um, New Zealand, now Australia. And I've also worked for major organizations in Africa and Southeast Asia looking at educational programs and capacity building. So I think I'm very fortunate that, first of all, I had a great career as a a researcher. I, I ran research groups for the first part of my career, and then I became involved in actually running universities and looking at the power of universities to change people's lives through education. And and it's not just education, it's the university connected to that problem holistically, as well as through the individual um, activities of curriculum, awarding degrees, supporting students, developing research programs, etc. It's the university as an entity that has a role to play. Um, Does it mean that we have to operate differently as a university? Well, we have to do both. I, I need... I need classic academics. I need classic technical people who understand quality assurance, who breathe in deeply the oxygen of um, effective curriculum development and meaningful learning and teaching. But I also need people who are prepared, as I've just indicated, to flex in an entrepreneurial way around how we deliver our teaching and that and the concept of it being classroom-based, whatever you define a classroom to be, then redefine it turn it through 90 degrees and think differently about the role of the tutor, think differently around the role of the course coordinator. Um, I, I think actually that people will cleave to this model because I think academics or those who seek professional careers in universities are intrinsically entrepreneurial. They really do want to break boundaries. They do want to be at the forefront, forefront of innovation. And we're kind of giving people permission to, to go, you know, go gangbusters in, in, in the sense that if you really want to stress your entrepreneurial muscle within an academic university context, then we have a place for you. So we're, t- we're having to look at the way that we um, recognize academic and professional promotion and career progression. That's a piece of work that's happening this year. Um, we are looking at different ways in which we operate on a team-based model, so the, the, the uh, center of gravity of future fit, is that all of this can only be achieved if we operate as multi-professional dynamic teams. So what we do in Tamworth will be different from what we do in Armadale. What we do in Armadale will not be quite the same as the offering we will make in Moree. Each one of those needs a place-based solution to the particular challenges of those communities, but everybody needs to know that they're receiving the same quality experience, the, the same core, of our educational offering is that stick of rock with quality um, written into it, but it gives us a fantastic way to address equity of opportunity. Um, It gives us a fantastic model to address diversity, because what we can do for our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander students can be better suited to their particular needs, rather than we require them to bolt into some Anglo Western centric version of education. And that goes back all the way around to the personalised learning agenda—to recognise to be adaptive, to use place-based modalities, to use um, diversity of approach, but founded absolutely bedded in a foundation of quality and equity and transparency of opportunity for everybody.
0: Well, for for being so frank and and passionate and energetic with us here today, Bridget, <laughs> it's been a really fascinating. Opportunity for me to have this conversation with you. We we wish you well. We we wish UNE well, and we wish your new future fit strategy all success into the future. And thanks very much for joining us on headaches today.
2: Martin, thank you, and and I do appreciate the conversation.
0: Well, there you have it. What do you think, Martin? Well, I mean, one of the things that really struck me at the start of that interview, Carl, was. Um, The the very interesting change that I observe in the way that vice chancellors are being selected and recruited, um, and that goes back, obviously, in Bridget's case to before COVID. We reflected on this uh, a little while ago with the, the, the very interesting appointment of Mark Scott at Sydney. A particular appointment for a particular institution with a particular point in time and need. Now, um, Bridget's appointment was made by a university that, that would have had a very clear view of what it wanted to do and a very clear view of, of what sort of leader it wanted and what sort of culture it wanted to create. So rather than just the, the, the process of career ambitious vice chancellors rising through the ranks at a number of different institutions and find their pathway to, to a place of their choice... Here we have a, a university through its council being very purposeful in the sort of leader it wanted, and it's certainly got that in Bridget. Yeah, it's, it's, uh,
1: I often get into an argument talking about leadership and people saying you can always train leaders in leadership skills and you've got leadership programs. And, you know, the, the, the reality is, and the evidence is very clear, that, yeah, sure, there's capability, but when we get into actual a deep sense of purpose or deep personality traits, it's those things that intuitively lend leaders to do things like create uh, cues of belonging, for instance, or um, uh, set up systems of innovation that lead to a result because they're authentically connected to the process and also the outcome, and she seems very much on that path. You know, you can't really buy that, that sort of that behaviour, that driving behaviour. It's infectious, and it will be infectious for her leadership team. She has a sense of, from what I could tell there at least, well, obviously without meeting her, Um, selflessness, you know, she, she, she wasn't, she's not climbing the corporate ladder or the academic sort of accolades uh, are in her sight. She's wanting to do something that makes a difference at a time in her career when she could be doing something very different, you know, looking at Easter Island, for instance.
0: Well, I mean, the, the, the word that occurred to me after the interview with Bridget, and I, I, I'm, I'm sure this must come across on this episode for, for our listeners, is you get a great sense of authenticity, and I think you used it there of selflessness. I mean, the idea of consulting so many different people over such a broad period of time because of the need to give voice to stakeholders. The idea of having a, a 10-year plan. As we've observed that the three- and five-year plan that tend to, to, to mirror the longevity of the appointment of the vice-chancellor themselves. Um, Now, in in Bridget's case, she's seeing the need for a longer plan because they have a different student cohort there, a student cohort that typically takes six years to study. You wouldn't have a five-year plan for a primary customer base that's got a life-cycle interaction with your institution longer than your plan itself. Everything is about other people and not about her herself when you talk with Bridget, and it's really, really refreshing.
1: Mm. And and plus, it's not... um just uh the last three feet in front of her she seems to have a very clear and, and developed ability to look at the short term the median and sort of the, the macro environment that she's in when she started talking about the uh industry integration and the way that they're developing that in tamworth in a in a totally immersive fashion that they're building learning environments inside particular industry sectors and you think about some of the struggles that universities and higher education institutions have with connecting and engaging effectively with industry. This seems like a, a brilliant model.
0: Well, I, th- I think you've described there and my comments before sort of hit it. The two things that we said before at the interview were the, were the science of the times. That is regional universities engaging with regional communities coming to the fore and the student experience and understanding what students are looking for and customers more broadly. Here we have in this interview a picture of a leader with a strategy that's got those two things at the very heart of it and her understanding how her leadership needs to be authentic to that process. And and the, 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 uh, the, the other feature that I took of it is how much it's important for her to build a culture in her organisation that's going to be conducive to those industry partnerships and those personal learning journeys. I think there's some really good differentiating pictures there of different sorts of leadership, different sorts of culture shaping for a different purpose for a university. And when you study
1: the most effective culture, and so there's a lot of references that I typically go to: Navy Seals, Pixar, uh, Apple at particular points in time, um, the New Zealand All Blacks, uh, Sydney Swans. They've all got something in common, and that is that they've got this this ability to provide high candor feedback. And so, you know, they'll they'll tell the truth. But they only really get away get away with doing that if they build this this nurturing element where they have this sense of belonging and she spoke to both those areas without using that sort of language you know she spoke very clearly about um entrepreneurs and and finding and selecting and and developing academics and their entrepreneurial bias those academics that really do want to challenge convention she's she's all about that. And you can just tell from her nature that she's probably not going to suffer fools and not going to deviate from that path, but at the same time, not do it with a stick, but do it in a very inclusive, caring manner.
0: Well, and this is where I think universities and their leaders, are really going to um stand apart from each other in the, the prevailing um, responses, I think, to the pressures and stresses of the sector at the moment. I, I, I fear that in too many cases, it's leading to leaders at all levels of our organisations becoming more detached, more isolated from the, the issues that the coal face and more directive in their passing on some of that pressure and some of that stress to their staff. And that would be a cultural response and a leadership response that would be so counterproductive right now. You, you get a very different feeling in what's going on at UNE of actually this being an opportunity with maybe a regional setting where the, the balance of power has moved in its favour. For for the, the qualities of, of staff and the qualities of teams working together amongst its staff, and for those staff working across the boundaries with external partners, to be something to be nurtured, to be invested in, to be supported, to be celebrated. And I don't think she'll suffer fools great, uh, gladly either, but I, it sounds like the sort of place that you'd want to be part of.
1: Yeah, it is quite uplifting, isn't it? Um, and I, I do think that the the integration process or that model that she has, particularly with Tamworth and the government driving that, I think she mentioned something about the government um, it wanting to see that that take place. Um, It's a different model, and it could well be the the exemplar model that we'd start talking about down the track.
0: Well, and and I heard that this expression of place-based models for different ways in which businesses work and and universities are operating is really coming to the fore in this particular conversation, isn't it? With, the, I mean, I don't know the geography of, of, of Armadale, Tamworth and Thoree as well as um, others will, but um, you, you, you know, you get a picture there of quite different environments, quite different industry sectors, quite different challenges, quite different circumstances. But here's a leader that's really sympathetic and understanding of the relative opportunity but the quite stark differences between those different place-based operations that her university can be part of with partners.
1: Mm. And its I didn't get a sense of pretense or a sense of um, pleasing anyone other than actually having a uh, legitimate impact on the market and also her, you know, driving the university in a way that's going to be the most useful that it possibly can be. So uh, look, I'm, I'm really excited about watching this one and seeing what takes place.
0: Oh, well, I'm, I'm sure there's going to be lots to learn from UNE for the sector as a whole and the world as a whole, because she's very much wanting to put the university on a world stage. I think I think this is a, a strategy and a leader and an emerging culture that the world will pay some significant attention to down the track. And that's all we have time for on this episode of Headaches. Thanks, Martin. Thanks, Carl.